The reading for today is from Acts 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Ben. Hey, um, as long as you're here, Ben, I want to thank you for your part last night in organizing the evening. I know you're part of a larger team, but thank you very much for putting together the All of Life Night. It was a really great event last night, and I appreciate your hard work. And I love your voice when you read. <laughs> Uh, Good morning, Redemption. My name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor here, and we are glad that you are here. We are continuing in the book of Acts. We're spending 2017 in the book of Acts. Um, Chapters 3 and 4 are actually one continuous narrative, one story that just builds uh, builds to a a kind of a climax, and we're not going to be able to handle all of 3 and all of 4 in the same day. So we're going to get you started today. We are going to do all of chapter 3, all 26 verses. But uh, we just wanted to kind of set it up by reading the the first 10. And what we begin to see here is that uh, in this story, in in chapters 3 and 4, is that um, just as Jesus had been opposed by the leaders in Jerusalem, so his followers are going to be opposed. And they're going to be opposed vigorously. They will be opposed vigorously. And, And really, what's so difficult to consider here is that they are opposing... Uh, the leaders of the new church, uh, Peter and John and, and all of those, the, the opposition actually starts with this wonderful, happy, you might describe it as a very good event. This man who had been lame uh, since he was born couldn't walk for 40 years and spent his time at, at this gate every single day uh, begging for alms. He gets healed. And, and, and that's where the trouble starts is after this wonderful thing happens. And, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to run through the story. I'll take you through all 26 verses, and then we'll, we'll finish with what I think our charge is as a church today in relationship to these verses. So here's the big idea today. Word and deed go together. Word, proclamation, and deed, action, go together. They're both needed Some of us lean more towards one or the other, and we need to recognize that both are needed, and they complement each other. So again, let's let's go through those, first of all, those first 10 verses that uh, Ben read for us, and we'll kind of start there. So Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. One of the things that we need to remember at this point is that Christianity at this time, at the very beginning of the church, was still really just a sect of Judaism. And so they were still uh, going into the temple for their regular hour of prayer. And this is in the afternoon that they're heading in there, in the ninth hour. 
And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the, of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Verse 4 is critical to this narrative, actually. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And boy, did he ever. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping, leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising. Uh, the leaping part, uh, that word actually uh, you could translate even as dancing. So he's dancing in church. So just watch out for that, okay? And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They were filled with wonder and amazement, so they're asking questions. And that leads us into the next part of the narrative when we get there. Uh, as they approach Peter and John, they come across this guy who can't walk. He's been there every day. Seeking alms. Alms is charity of food or money, anything that might help sustain him in, in somewhere, some way. And somebody had to take him there. Somebody had to take him home. Generally, two or three people had to take him there, take him home. And, and as he's there, also, he probably needed somebody to care for him as he's there. So it's not just that he's <clears throat> challenged in this way, but understand that he is also a burden to the community. He's a tremendous burden to the community. But there's another part of the burden that kind of goes unsaid, but it's embedded in the text there. It's part of what's going on with verse 4. Part of the burden is that just like today, when somebody is begging, people would avert their eyes from him. And they would, they would, um, um, they, they would practice something known as um, the, the, you pretend as though it's not happening. It's, it's, a, it's a civil unrecognition of what is happening in the public square. You just pretend, you ignore it. You pretend it isn't even happening. So you don't want to look at him. You don't want to make eye contact. And, and if he does receive anything, occasionally somebody would give him something. Scholars would say that mostly what they, he would receive from is, is something known as mechanical charity, which we practice today as well. Mechanical charity. You know, you do it to get the guy off your back. You, you, you do it just so that you can kind of move on. You know, it's something you have to stop and get over with and then, and then move on. Uh, you, you do it so that you can also kind of, in your mind, you've got that little good deed for the day box that you got to check and you can, you can check that. You throw them a buck or two, you're done. But the last thing anybody wants in the midst of this, the last thing is a personal encounter. Nobody really wants that. But not Peter and John. Verse 4. This is different. He, they do something that he, this guy is absolutely not used to. They move toward him. They look intently at him. And they ask him to cast his gaze. In other words, to look intently at them. And understand, this is not natural. This is absolutely not natural. 
it's possible that he's been doing this for decades and nobody has ever done this with him. Nobody's ever asked him to do this. Because what he would do is he would sit there literally with his head down and his arm stretched out because it was shameful to look at anybody. There's this tremendous lack of dignity there. And so John and Peter engage the very person that everybody else really tries to avoid or just tries to check off their list. And, and we do the same thing. You know, I, I'm, I, all of us at some time have encountered, and, and, and I get it, it's, hard. it's just human nature. It's hard. And I know the argument, because I've made the same argument before, but some of these guys are just scam artists. Yes, that is absolutely true, and we know that. And research has been done on that. But you know what? Some really do need help. Some of them really, really do need help. There's nothing else that they can do. And what's interesting and confounding is that many of them, more than anything, even more than the alms, more than the charity, and I know this is really hard, more than the money, many of them would really like just a personal encounter. They'd like somebody to extend dignity to them. I know they can't pay their bills or get food with dignity, but how do you place a value on dignity? And they would love that. When I was uh, in seminary and, and going to Pasadena every week, uh, Fuller, the main campus was downtown, and I was going with a friend, Chris Chandler. We'd drive over there every week and stay in this place uh, about four blocks from the campus down there. <clears throat> and every morning we'd get up and we'd walk over to to our classes, we were there maybe three days a week. And as we'd walk over there, there was this one section that we would always walk through where there were three or at least three or four people that were begging alms. They were doing this. They weren't, they weren't necessarily lame, but they were begging alms. They were homeless, they were troubled, uh, all of that. And again, odds are that two of the four were scam artists. I don't know. But I, I remember at one point, I was wrestling with this very text and, and trying to understand what was really going on in, in verse 4. And I said to Chris, let's see what happens if we just go up and, and just start talking to one of them. Let's just see what happens. And, and he said, well, let's, let's have a buck or two for him as well. Let's at least do that. And I said, yeah, that's fine. But let's, let's not just walk by, avert our eyes. Let's stop and engage. And, and we were fascinated. The first guy we walked up to we handed him a couple of dollars, and he immediately turned away as if, I know you don't want anything to do with me. But we stopped him, and we squared him up, and we looked him in his eyes, and we shook his hand, and we asked him for his story. And, and you could just see him melt, literally melt. And, and now you have, here you go, little uh, lingo here. You have other marks walking by him. He's not the least bit interested. So there's potential income walking by him, and he's just amazed that we're sitting here talking to him. Um, years ago, when I was in the marketplace, I used to travel to New York once a, a month for a whole week to do work in midtown Manhattan. And I was traveling with a guy named uh, Don Moncher, he, a little older than me. He was kind of my trainer. He was the merchandise manager. I was the buyer, and we worked together. And he had a lot of experience with this sort of thing. Also, a really wonderful Christian guy. And, and I remember one time we were down in the subway waiting for our train. And this guy came in, and it was clear that the guy was homeless. 
or, or was in big trouble. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, he had this big kind of um, laundry basket uh, with a drawstring of yo-yos that lit up when you, you know, have you ever seen those yo-yos when you, you know, they lit, he had a big basket of the, I have no idea where he got them. Maybe he walked into a warehouse, snuck in there and grabbed the bag of yo-yos and walked out. So now he's walking around trying to, he's, he's spinning one of the yo-yos, he's trying to sell one. And, and you should have seen everybody just averting their eyes, trying to get away from him. And he goes by Mr. Mantra, I always called him Mr. Mantra. He goes by Mr. Mantra and, and he spins it and he says, would you like to buy a yo-yo? And Mr. Mantra looked him right in the eye and he said, no, thank you very much for asking though. And the guy stopped and stood, he's kind of hunched over, he stopped, he looked up and he goes, thank you, sir, I appreciate you being a gentleman about it. This idea of relationship, of personal encounter, the issue of dignity, is it hard work? Yeah, it's hard work. Is it hard in the middle of our busy time? Yeah, I get, I get all of that. But, but dignity is a big part of the gospel. It's a huge part of the gospel. I've heard so many more stories from people in this church and the other redemption churches very similar. People asking for a buck or two and people from redemption church saying, Ha-ha, I'm taking you to lunch. Taking people to lunch feeding them, buying them groceries, it's a big deal. It helps restore just a little piece of dignity. Peter and John are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they get up and close, they get up close and personal. That's what they did. They got up close and personal. And really, I think they're just taking their cue from Jesus. There's, there's the, the encounter in the Gospels of Jesus and the leper. Nobody would go near a leper, let alone touch the leper. And Jesus goes over and touches the leper. He gets up, up close and personal with the leper. This is who Jesus is, and this is who he calls us to be as well. And verse 6 is also pretty important. We, we just saw last week in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, that the community of the church, they were selling their things, and they were giving their money to anybody who had need. Well, why not for this guy? Isn't that interesting that this follows right after they're talking about selling their stuff and giving their, their money away to everybody who has need? Peter and John didn't give any money to this guy. In fact, they say, ah, we don't have any silver or gold. I think this encounter reminds us why the early church held material goods with such casual regard. It's because they had something better to share. They had Jesus and I know, you heard Josh say, we live in this consumer society that keeps telling us that more is better. And so it's hard to wrestle with that. But Jesus is better. Jesus is actually better. And the miracle of him walking again is done in the name of, which means, in the biblical sense, it means under the authority, the power, and the personhood of Jesus, who he is. It's the gift of Jesus, and he can walk now. And he's leaping, and he's dancing. And maybe the most amazing thing, for those of you who have ever had to go through this before, he didn't have to go to physical therapy and fight with insurance with how many you know, sessions of physical therapy he could have. Now, I'm sorry if you're a physical therapist because you'd like the business, but Jesus sort of circumvents that for you. Okay? 
There's an interesting historical exchange based on this account. Some of you may be familiar with it. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas was visiting Pope Innocent IV, and they arrived in the, the Pope's kind of taking him around, showing him around. And they arrived in the Pope's chamber where the priests were counting large sums of, sums of money. This is a time when the church had a lot of money. And Pope Innocent turned to Aquinas and said proudly, you can see the church is no longer in an age in which she must say, silver and gold, I have none. Aquinas replied, that is true, Holy Father, nor can she now say to the lame man, rise and walk. Our founding pastor, one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, if you know him, he's got a wit like this. I think he's read a lot of Thomas Aquinas. I think that's why his, his wit is so, so quick. And then verses 8 through 10, there's some great irony here. Uh, he's leaping and praising God in the temple. This behavior is considered terribly undignified in the temple. It, it, it's a type of behavior that would get looks of scorn ordinarily from people, undignified. Uh, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago, does anybody remember that song from Matt, Matt Redman? Undignified, I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion in my soul. If you don't all start singing with me, I'll just keep singing. And I'll become even more undignified than this. Some would say it's foolishness. Matt Redman wrote this song about this. And, and the people took notice, and they took notice favorably. This is odd. Usually they'd be like, uh, temple security. He was praising God. That's what he's doing now. He gets healed, begins to praise God. And, and, and he recognizes that the miracle is about God. That the miracle is done by the power of God. And the, the miracle was for God's glory. And so he praises God. And there's really also a foreshadowing, I think, here of the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22. You begin to see what the New Jerusalem is going to look like. That all cares are cast away because there is no more sin. There's no more brokenness. There's no more darkness. There's just restoration and resurrection and wholeness and joy. Well, what happens? Verses 11 through 16. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. I think it's interesting that Peter's strong leadership and great proclamation in the book of Acts is almost exclusively, if not totally exclusively, done in response to what God is doing. Peter's not initiating anything. He's responding to what God is doing. He's responding to how God and the Holy Spirit is moving in the people. He's responding to the awe of other people as they watch what God is doing. And this Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch or Solomon's colonnade, it's known as all of those uh, different things, is, is an outdoor mall or bazaar kind of a thing that was on the east wall of the temple. And there were merchants there, and there, were, there was entertainment, there were speakers, there, were, there was lots of activity. This may or may not be helpful to you, but I remember uh, years ago several times visiting Seaport Village in San Diego, and I'm kind of thinking that's 
sort of what it, what it looks like. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. That's a key verse right there, verse 12. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Pilate, the governor for Rome, had decided to release Jesus, if you remember the story in the Gospels. And they said, no, instead, there was a tradition that you would release one of the prisoners. They said, no, don't release Jesus. We want that murderer Barabbas released instead. So Peter's just recalling that for them. He said, remember, you guys did all this? Okay. He's just stating facts. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. There's that resurrection thing again. To this, we are witnesses. And that we there, he's not just saying John and I. He's saying we all saw this. We're all witnesses to this. And his name, by faith in his name, Jesus, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 12, it's not us. You know, everybody's looking at us, but we're saying, no, it's not us. And I got to tell you, there's, there's, there's a lot of things done in God's name, but really, we're, it's really hard not to try to steal some of that glory for yourself. That happens all the time. It's part of the human condition, but Peter and John are just saying, it's not us. We're not so pious. We're just ordinary guys following the call of God in our life and testifying to his truth. And then... After they say it's not us, they then appeal to the law of Moses and and point out that Jesus is part of the lineage and teaching of the great fathers of Judaism and that he comes from Yahweh and that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm going to read that. Some of you are like, you read that a lot, don't you? Yeah, I do. I admit it. It's an important passage. We should read it a lot. Here's what Isaiah writes. about the coming Messiah, 700 years before this happened. Here's what Isaiah writes. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted up, uh, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred behind human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He, you know, he was beat up pretty bad, Jesus was, before the crucifixion even took place. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. Isn't that the exact opposite of our culture today? We just want all the beautiful people. We worship all the beautiful people. Jesus was not beautiful. He was not anything special to look at. In fact, people would avert their eyes very often. And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, 
He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He saved us and yet we looked at him with scorn. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. It's exactly what happened. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Father to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. We see We shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, we shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Salvation, redemption, reconciliation. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Even as we are still sinners, he does all of this for us. And you read this and you go, wow, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. And that's exactly what they did to Jesus. And and does this also not confirm, again, what we talked about last week and the week before, The fact that both God's sovereignty and the agency of human beings, they both exist. And there's that tension. We have agency and accountability even though God is sovereign and ultimately in control of everything. Both exist, yet God's sovereignty ultimately will rule. So Peter opens and closes this paragraph with the clear and emphatic declaration That this is about Jesus, it's by Jesus, it's through Jesus, it's because of Jesus, and it's the one that Isaiah talked about 700 years earlier. He's the Christ. He was crucified in accordance to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. He's the one that the Jews had been waiting for centuries for, and they executed him. And Peter reminds him of that. And now he presses even deeper, he digs even deeper You look at the last part of this paragraph, I'm sorry, this chapter. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. (laughs) The speaker's saying, "Ah, you just behaved in, in an ignorant fashion. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he says, you were ignorant. Now, he's not saying that you have an excuse. He's not saying you have an excuse, but rather you have an opportunity to correct your ignorance. You had a lack of information. You had a lack of understanding. Now you have understanding and you have the opportunity to correct your mistake, to correct your ignorance. You know that nobody's ever going to get off the hook by saying, well, I didn't know. I hope you understand that. That's theologically correct. I didn't know. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to steal from the company. Give me a second chance. I, oh, when I was at <clears throat> Paradise Valley Community Church, um, one of the, for whatever reason, congregations often take on these interesting little uh, sort of siloed personalities. We had uh, a number of Phoenix and Scottsdale police officers who attended Paradise Valley Community. Jan's shaking her head. She remembers that. We had a number of these police officers that attended there. And all of them used to say the same thing. When you get pulled over by a police officer, you want to know what the surest, you want to guarantee that you're going to get a ticket? The surest way you're going to get a ticket? Here's what you say. Officer, I didn't know. They just start writing. Ignorance is not an excuse. And God's salvation is the same way. This is what Paul points out in Romans chapter 1. He says, look around you. You are without excuse. You, you suppress the truth about the existence of God. You cannot be excused from this. Your ignorance is not a free pass. But there's opportunity because ignorance can always be corrected. You can repent. Peter is clearly calling for a change of their mind here, a turning around to leave the path that they were on, which we heard in Isaiah 52 and 53. You got to get off that path that you're on, that path of self-salvation, that path that says I'm good enough, that path that says, oh, I can live up to this moral code or this moral standard or the Mosaic law. I can live up to that. I have no trouble doing that. Yeah, you do. You need to get off that path and move towards Jesus. And again, 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 Peter cites the law and his prophets in order to make his case. And the reason is because the audience there gets it. Everything he says in there, the audience is tracking right with him because they knew that Old Testament really well. And he points to Deuteronomy and he points to Samuel, he points to Genesis, and he reminds them in pointing to that the danger of rejecting the Messiah. And again, again, he points out that the agency and activities of man do not negate change or contradict the sovereignty of God. We cannot overrule the sovereignty of God, yet we still have responsibility and accountability. And so we need redemption. We need deliverance. Jesus gives us that. And then verse 25, it's out of the people of God, Israel, all families, all nations, all peoples, all tribes, everybody of the earth will be blessed. And this is interesting. This is very interesting at this point in the story of Acts. Because Peter proclaims that the gospel is for everyone. He's proclaiming 
the gospel is for everyone. And he truly believes this cognitively. He truly believes this logically. He understands the truth of this in his mind, but he hasn't gotten it to his heart yet. At this point, in practice, in practice, he's saying this, but in practice at this point, the way he acts in his life, he still believes that God's mercy, justice, salvation, redemption, and deliverance is still just for the Jews. He's proclaiming it for everybody, but really he's going, eh, but it's really just for us. This is why we have chapter 10 in the book of Acts. When God reveals to Peter once for all, no, you, you need to not just proclaim that it's for everybody, now you need to go and do it. And Peter says, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't eat what was unclean. And God says, you're insulting me, Peter, by calling what I have made clean you're calling it unclean. And Peter goes, okay, I got you now, God. I got you now. And this is when Peter finally begins to not just preach it, but to live it. His mind and his heart line up, and he begins to do word and deed. Just like for Peter, the internal battle that you and I, we all have between left brain and right brain is really challenging. That's why Tom is always saying, what we know takes precedence over what we feel. We, we have to make sure that we, we understand how those are related and that we're doing both. And that leads into what we would, might call the so what portion. So what, Frank? It was all very interesting, but what of it? Well, here you go. Number one, we, the church are now God's people. We're verse 25. We're called to show God's light and to bless others and to do it by his power. We have seven core values at Redemption Church, and one of them is that we do God's work God's way. We don't do it our way. We do it by his power. And I don't know if I can emphasize enough the importance of verses 12 and 25. Verse 12. Why do you stare at us as though by our power and piety we made him walk? It wasn't us. It's not us. In verse 25, we are the continuation of the charge that God gave to Abraham in Genesis to be God's blessing and God's light to everybody in the world. So it's important to understand the gospel of Jesus saves us. His life, his death, his resurrection we look forward to his second coming and we praise God. But that is just the beginning of the story. It's not enough to just be saved and then not do anything. It's not enough to just proclaim the gospel and not live it out. If you're saved and then you don't do anything, if you proclaim and you're not living it out, it's like being at the starting line of a marathon and the gun goes off and you cross that little starting line and then you stop. You started the marathon, but you're not running the marathon. And believe me, life is a marathon, amen? And, and the Christian faith is like a marathon. It's, it's, not, it's not a sprint, and it's done through God's power, and it's done through his initiation, and we respond to that. It's by his power. We are so blessed that he calls and equips every one of us. And so we need to respond to that blessing by being sent in his name by his power to be his light and his blessing, to love our neighbors. 
to, to be engaged and involved in one way, shape, or form in, in some sort of outward-focused living that is powered by the gospel, to love our neighbors, to love our community. And that leads to number two. Chapter three is a combination of word and deed. And, and the two mutually reinforce each other. Peter serves and he proclaims. And by the way, this is important. It's not just any word and any deed. It's not random acts of kindness, okay? This is all rooted in the gospel. And, and it's because of the resurrection. He refers to the resurrection again. He just can't get off this resurrection thing. And we're new creations, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And as new creations, we are now filled with the Holy Spirit and we're empowered to minister in a way that not only dictates our message, but shows our message. So I love the way Tom says it, Tom Schrader, again, one of our founding pastors. He says, as Christians, we are to speak the truth boldly, but we are also called to make the invisible God visible. We are to do both, both word and deed. He's a great theologian. I can't think of his name right now. That's how great he is. But he said this. <laughs> Cody will probably remind me who it is. Theology is not theology until it's lived. Theology doesn't mean anything if it's just up here. It's not true theology until we start to live it. And that leads to number three, Peter's call. We need repentance. We need to turn from our current ways we need to admit our shortcomings. We need to accept God's grace and love. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, is famous for saying, and he's right, the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. Well, I did repent. I'm a, I'm a Christian now. No, 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 no. Even after you've been saved and delivered, you still need constant, I still need constant repenting. We need to constantly be turning from that pull into our old ways, that pull of our flesh. We need to repent. The whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. And, and what Peter's dealing with here, I'm, okay, now I'm just give, for the next three minutes, I'm going to go into teaching mode. So just hang in there with me, okay? But, but what Peter's dealing with here and, and struggling with every time he gets up to speak now is he's struggling with something that Festinger called cognitive dissonance, where the word cognitive represents a thought or a belief about something, and dissonance means conflict. So now what's happening is you have two thoughts or beliefs that are actually in conflict with each other, and that causes great discomfort and disruption in our lives. We know this is true, and we know this is true. They don't seem to line up together. What do I do? There's actually three responses. There's actually three responses that we have to cognitive dissonance, to to the fact that a new reality has entered our life. The first response is to run and deny. And that's really what the religious leaders in Jerusalem do with Peter's message. They run and deny, and they go so far as to say, we're not only running and denying it, we're going to try and suppress it and shut it down. Okay? And when we run and deny from new information, what we do is we settle in even more hunkered down in our previous positions commitments, and perspectives. It's not just that we say no, but we, we actually become more strident in what we already believe. We just deny that it exists. 
In verses 13 and 14, Peter says to them, you not only delivered Jesus, but you denied him. You denied him. In other words, they knew something was true, but they ignored it. Next week, we're going to look at the clear and compelling evidence that they know this is true, but they're denying it. It's not that they were misinformed and denying it. They know it's true and they're denying it. That's one thing we do. The second thing we do with cognitive dissonance is we adjust, however so slightly, our current narrative in order to explain away the new information. In other words, we say, yeah, well, that's probably true. And then that's followed by a but. Here's the reason why it's not important and here's the reason why I don't have to change my mind. You allow the new information, but you minimize it or delegitimize de- it in some way. And the third thing we do with cognitive dissonance is we, we change our mind. And we accept the new reality. We turn and we live in faith. We repent. And in verses 19 through 21, Peter talks about three benefits of accepting this new reality. There's three benefits. He did very clearly right there. Verse 1 is forgiveness of sin. He says this, this problem of guilt and shame and and lack of dignity, and the, the darkness that we live in, and the, and the wickedness that we practice that we know about, but we're constantly denying because we're a good person and we can't have that cognitive dissonance. We have all that forgiven. It's just taken away. We're walking around with this ball and chain of guilt and shame for our sin. Jesus comes and cuts that ball away from us, and we can walk away from it. And how often does Jesus cut that ball and chain of sin and of guilt and of shame? And after he cuts it, we just bend over and pick it up and carry it with us. We're forgiven. And it's eradicated. White as snow. And the deliverance is both temporal and eternal. Um, Temporal meaning having to live the rest of our lives this side of heaven. And that's tougher, yes. Paul even describes this in Romans chapter 7. He says... You know, thank, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, but I'm still living today, and it's like I do the things that I, I don't want to do, and I, those things I do want to do, I don't do. There's still this struggle, but, but God is in control, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we have the ability not to sin now. We still sin, but we actually have the power by God's grace and the filling of the Holy Spirit to not sin. Uh, Luther, again, the great reformer, He describes the narrative arc of the Bible this way. Genesis 1 and 2, it was possible for humans to sin. They hadn't sinned yet, but it was possible for them to sin. And they proved that in Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, till the resurrection of Jesus. That's a big chunk of, that's like chapter 2. Genesis uh, 3 till the resurrection, it's not possible to not sin. I know that's a double negative. That's going to drive you English teachers crazy. But you can't, you, you can't not sin. We're just embedded in sin. But since the resurrection and to the second coming, now we have access to Jesus, the Savior, and we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's possible not to sin. We have the power not to sin. But then the last chapter of the narrative arc of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem, not possible to sin. Isn't that awesome? That's what we're headed for. That's the hope that we have. 
So we're forgiven of our sin. The second thing he says is that we have refreshment. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and fills us and we are refreshed. We are made new creations and we have a new purpose and a new spirit and a new call in life. We are refreshed and we are continually refreshed day after day by the gospel, by preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, by filling with his word and allowing the Holy Spirit to wash over us and fill us every single day. And then the third thing is he says we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. When he does usher in the new Jerusalem, when, when, when the, the created order of Genesis 1 and 2 is restored to us in Revelation 21 and 22, and we live in eternity without a tear and without darkness, without sin, and we live the way we are supposed to live, that's our hope, that's our call, and we are witnesses to that reality to our world. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you have called and filled us. What a privilege that is. And we just pray that, um, not that we would be worthy of it because you have made us worthy, but that we would understand our place and we would respond to it. God, fill us with your spirit again and again and again. Help us to understand our call. Help us to be people who proclaim the truth, but also go and live your gospel, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.